Tonight, I want to begin with the question, uh, with this question. What do you do with the frustrations of life? What do you do with the frustrations of life? Um, tell you a story about seven years ago in the summer, um, I was living in Richmond and I was driving my wife, Mary Clark, and some friends to the airport. They were going out of town for a meeting. And so I got up really early. I think it was like a 6.30 a.m. flight. Um, drove them to the Richmond airport and was coming back had this old Subaru Outback, was coming back on the downtown expressway in Richmond, and my muffler fell off on the highway. And so if that's ever, has that ever happened to you? Probably not. What happens when your muffler falls off is then your car sounds like a motorcycle um, because the muffler connects like right underneath the driver's seat. And so it sounded like I was driving a motorcycle wide open in the middle of the highway. And so it, it fell off in the middle of the interstate, downtown interstate. So I had to drive home park that car, and then get, a, get the other car to go pick up the muffler. Um, so I go, this is at like 6.30 a.m., sun's just cresting over the horizon. Um, so I go, and I, we live like 15 minutes from where it fell off, or maybe even close to that. So I drove, I go, I go back up on the highway, there my muffler is sitting in the middle of the highway. I, I pull over, I run out, I grab the muffler. Um, but when I got out of the car, somehow my door managed to lock on itself. So I'm standing outside of a car. My wife's on an airplane going up to, up to Boston. Um, I've got my muffler, and I'm locked out of my car at 6.30 a.m. And so what I, luckily I had my cell phone in my pocket and wasn't in the car. Oh, the car was running, too. The car that I was locked out of was running on the side of the road. So I ended up calling, uh, calling a friend's wife who was like eight months pregnant at the time, woke her up, and she came and picked me up. Um, and I got home, and everything was fine. I got a new muffler. Um, which is, you know, what it is. Okay, so silly story, but really frustrating. That was a frustrating morning for me. Um, uh, but yeah, silly. So what do you do with the frustrations of life? What do you do when, when life throws you things that frustrate you? Um, in 2004, uh, there was a massive tsunami that hit the rim of the Indian Ocean that killed about 250,000 people, a third of which were children. And over the following weeks, newspapers and magazines were filled with these articles that were asking the question, where was God? In the midst of this, my first story is trivial, but this is very serious, right? This, this really frustrating, confusing event. Where was God in the midst of the tsunami? One reporter wrote this. He said, if God is God, he's not good. And if God is good, he's not God. You cannot have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. It was like this tsunami um, opened everyone's eyes to the reality of, of is God good? Um, is he powerful? And this is often posed as the problem of evil. If God is love, then why is there evil in the world? Or as this reporter framed it, if God is good, then he's not God. Um, either he's all powerful or he's all good. He cannot be both. Uh, the great novelist uh, Dostoevsky wrote a book called The Brothers Karamazov in the late 18th, 18, 19th century. And in this novel, he has his one character, these, these brothers are in this novel, and his brother, one character, Ivan, who is in this existential crisis about the problem of evil. And he goes to his brother, Elosha, and um, he poses the question, he poses the problem of evil by trotting out the most horrific things that you can imagine. And these, um, it's said that when Dostoevsky was writing this, that it was actually real things that had happened. These were real events that had been recorded and were talked about just... 
Um, I'm not going to say them here because they're, they're so disturbing, but these really disturbing things that people had done in laughter um, to children. And, and he, he brings these forth to his brother and says, how do you reconcile this with the God you believe in? Elosha, the, the younger brother, was studying in a monastery, and he brings him, how can you believe in a God, um, the God that you claim is good, when this is what happens to people in the world? So how do you answer this question? How do you reconcile, in your own mind, the goodness of God with the real and present evil in the world? This is a big question that we ask in a lot of different ways. Um, whether it's wrestling with cosmic injustice, um, real injustice that you see in the news or have seen firsthand, or it's cursing under your breath because your tap-and-go order is late and you're late to your class, right? Um, we get frustrated and we ask this question, whether the small scale or the large scale. The question is, if God is good, he's not good. If God is God, he's not good. And if God is good, he's not God. And this pervades our experience as humans, both the big evil and the personal frustrations and inconveniences. And so in the parable that we're reading tonight, Jesus takes on this question. And this semester, if you're joining with us for the first time, we've been reading some of the parables of Jesus together. And um, parables are stories that Jesus told, and he told them uh, in a particular way to get past people's defenses and, and to answer the question, um, what is the kingdom of God like and what is Jesus like as a king? And so tonight we're going to read Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43. Um, this is printed on the back of your bulletin if you have one. I'm going to read this for us. Okay, Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and it is given to us in love. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air may come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all was leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the wheats of the field. And Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, thank you uh, for your word to us tonight. Thank you for gathering us. I um, pray you would help us, help us to make sense of this problem um, of evil. And um, Lord, help us to see Jesus. Um, we pray in his name. Amen. Um, so our outline for tonight, and this is on the bulletin if you want to follow along there, is uh, first, why is evil a problem? Second, how do we live in light of the reality of evil? And third, what answer does the Christian faith give to the problem of evil? And just to cite my sources, um, I've been, I'm relying on a, a friend, Kevin Twitt, and his, how he's helped me to think about this. So first, why is evil a problem? So um, right, this parable, this man, he has a field, uh, he sows good seed, the workers go to sleep, in comes an enemy, he sows bad seed in the midst. They wake up at harvest time, the plants start to grow up, and this particular seed that was called weeds here is believed to be this plant called darnel, which... Um, Lots of people seem to know about. I've never heard of it before. But it's something that looks just like wheat until the last minute, right at harvest time. And then you can tell the difference. And so it comes up, and it's not till the end when the, um, the, uh, the workers see that it's not wheat. And they go to, to their master and say, hey, we need to separate this stuff. We need to get the weeds out of here. And the man says, no, we can't do that because the, the weeds, the, um, the roots are so entangled with one another. that if we were to pull the weeds out, then the wheat would come out too, and we can't do that. So let's wait until harvest time. And then at harvest time, we'll pull them out together, and then we'll take the weeds and bond, bundle them and throw them in the fire, and we'll take the wheat and bring it into the storehouse. Um, and then the disciples ask Jesus what this means, and Jesus says, this parable is about evil and why evil persists. Um, Now, some say that the problem of evil disproves God. They say if God is good, if God is God, then evil wouldn't exist. Alvin Plantinga, who's a Christian philosopher, he picks up this idea and he he poses it this way. Um, He says this, Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, are obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus no way to say that there is a such thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, and it's not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Here's what Plantinga is saying. He's saying by naming wickedness, by looking at the evil of the world and actually calling it evil, by naming it as something that is in reality an evil thing, you are saying that there is some great objective morality out there, that there's some morality outside of you. And this is what Jesus is affirming in the beginning of this parable. So how do you, ask yourself this, um, how do you make sense of the real terrible and evil suffering in the world? How do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of the suffering in your own life? Um, you have a couple of options. Um, I'm going to just list these out for us. A couple of options. Self-transcendence, moral triumph, fatalism, secularism, and Christianity. So um, I'm going to work through those real quick. So first, the story of self-transcendence. This is the story that Buddhism tells. Um, it says that suffering and evil is an illusion that is caused by desire and by the ignorance of true reality. And what is that true reality? Um, the true reality is that there is no you, that everything's an illusion. 
So the response then to suffering within this framework is just to detach, to rid yourself of desire, to pretend that it doesn't exist. And then the ultimate solution in this story is to realize that there is no you and to escape into what is called the all soul. So that's the story of self-transcendence. Another story that tries to answer the question of evil is the story of moral triumph. And this is the story that Hinduism tells. In this story, suffering is deserved. Suffering is based on your moral failure in current, your current life or in your past life. And the response to this, the response to suffering, is to do good. Um, to endure suffering and to live rightly so that your next life will be better. Because your only hope is to escape. To realize your oneness with Brahman and then to end the cycles of incarnation. That's the story of moral triumph. Another story that we hear is the story of fatalism. Um, and this is the story of the, of the Marvel Universe. Um, because it answers this question. Um, in the movies, it's asking and answering the question, how do we deal with the problem of evil? And we see this particularly in Thor and its answer in the Norse mythology. Um, it says this, in this sto- story, suffering is your destiny. You are destined to suffer. And the solution to suffering is that you are to endure it. Just have a stiff upper lip. Endure your suffering. Because your ultimate hope is that if you endure your suffering, then you will receive glory and honor and Valhalla. That's the story of Thor. Um, That's the story of fatalism. And then we've got the story of secularism. And this is the story that our modern Western culture tells us. And it tells us that suffering is natural. Suffering is just a byproduct of the evolutionary process. It's natural for suffering. Dying, that's, that's a natural thing. And the solution to this is that we all need a better technique for dealing with it. We need to change the world. We need to make society a better place and to do what we can to just be happy now. Because our ultimate hope is death. And that doesn't sound like hope. But this story, the story of secularism, says that the only way to overcome evil The only way to overcome suffering is to realize that eventually everything just goes away. And if we're honest, the way that we deal with suffering and evil in our own lives is a combination of these, right? Like we pick and choose which ones we want. Sometimes we deal with suffering, like we detach like Buddhists. Other times we're stoic like superheroes. Other times we try to fix our our technique. We're just going to have a better diet, have a better schedule. I'm going to have new technology that's going to help with the way that I feel. And to all of these competing stories, the Christian story speaks. And this is a story that's told through the pages of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is actually contained in this parable. God created the world and he made all things good. And then at the pinnacle of creation, he created humans in his image and called it very good. The creation was full of beauty and wonder and delight and joy. Or as Jesus says in this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But then the story of the Bible says that Satan tried to ruin God's good creation. That he led the first humans into rebellion against God. And in doing so, everything that was wrong with the world was brought into being. All darkness and brokenness and evil and injustice is because of our first parents' first rebellion. So that means that divorce and abuse and depression and anxiety and sickness and cancer and death, all of these find their origin not in God, but in Satan and the rebellion that he led against God. Or, as Jesus says in this parable, the man's enemy came and sowed weeds among the weak, the wheat, and went away. 
And I know the Christian story sounds crazy to our modern ears. But it is the one, the one story that deals with the world as it actually is. It's the, one that, the only one that says that evil is real. And it's not the way that things are supposed to be. Which is what we all feel, isn't it? I mean, think about this. When your parents divorced, that was real. And it wasn't an illusion. And you didn't do anything to deserve it. And it wasn't part of your destiny. And you couldn't have prevented it if you had better technique. The other worldviews say that you could do all those things because your suffering isn't real or you're something, suffering something that you could have avoided if you'd lived your life differently or your suffering is something that's actually your fault or something you just need to have a stuff, stiff upper lip about. So to answer our question, why is evil a problem? Evil is a problem because it's real. And the Christian faith is the only explanation for evil that makes sense of our lived experience And evil is a problem because evil is personal. Evil is a result of a relational rupture between humanity and God. At the core of reality, there is a brokenness that has sent ripple effects through every part of life, through all of us. Um, Alexander Shultzenitsyn, another Russian uh, writer who won a Nobel Prize in literature, he says this about the reality of evil. He says, if only it were so simple to say that evil existed out there somewhere. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was only necessary to separate from them or to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And while the Christian view of evil is arguably the most compelling, um, let me be the first to tell you that it doesn't give us all the answers. Um, It doesn't give us all the answers. We have to be humble when we engage with the real suffering of our neighbors. Christianity has a response to evil that helps us to make sense of the way things are. But it's not the kind of answer that we may hope for. It's not the kind of answer that ties everything up into a pretty little package. And there are far too many Christian answers that try to make everything neat and tidy. Um, But the neat and tidy answers tend to leave out some of the major teachings of the Bible. John Frame, who's a a theologian and professor whom I deeply respect, wrote this. He said, My own verdict is that we are unlikely to find complete answers to all of these questions. Answers, that is, which are not subject to further questions. But I do think we can provide answers in another sense. If you want, if what you want is encouragement, encouragement, he said again, If what you want is encouragement encouragement to go on believing in the midst of suffering, Scripture provides that, and it provides it abundantly. So how do we live in light of the reality of evil? How do we go on believing in the midst of suffering? We just want to say a couple things about this. Um, The first thing we see in in these parables is that um, the kingdom is actually growing. Now, first we see that even in the presence of evil, the kingdom is growing. This is verses 31 through 35, um, when Jesus tells the parable of the mustard seed. He's saying that the kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows up into a big tree, and all the animals, all the birds come and land in the tree. And I find it interesting that when the parables get Jesus alone, they don't ask him about this, question, this parable. Like, when the, when the disciples get Jesus alone, they're not curious about this one. They get this one. They're like, yeah, it's growing. We win. Like, they love this story. And we love this sort of story too, right? We, we love the story where we're the hero, where things are going well. Um, but it's the parable about evil being intertwined with us that they're confused about and they want, ex- they want explained. 
This is true for us too, right? We love stories where we win. We don't like stories where evil lives among us and we can't get rid of it. And to be honest, um, this is why so much of the Christian music that you hear on the radio is so awful. Um, it's because it doesn't tell you the truth. I mean, I'm sure, there is, I'm sure there's great stuff. I haven't listened in a couple of years, but I'm sure there is great stuff. Um, but so much is awful because it doesn't tell you the truth. It doesn't, um, it doesn't engage with the lower octaves of our lives. It's superficial and lame. It paints this picture of reality that just skips along the surface and never dives into the depths of our sin and shame and brokenness and confusion and despair and pain and unbelief. And this is why we sing the songs we sing in RUF. I know some of you who are new to RUF are probably thinking, we sing weird songs in RUF. We sing these weird old songs about death and suffering. And um, like, why do we sing these songs in RUF? Um, The reason why we sing these songs in RUF is because the truth is, is that you will suffer in your lives. You will suffer. And I want you to be prepared for when suffering comes. This is why we sing songs that deal with real suffering. Because that's the real lives that you're going to live. There is no unmixed joy this side of glory. And in the midst of this, in the midst of our real suffering, we're told that the kingdom is growing. And we need to learn to live in this reality where the kingdom is already present. Jesus is reigning in heaven and his kingdom is moving forward. But the fullness has not yet arrived. The kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here fully. And the reality that good and evil can be almost impossible to extinguish until they've grown a while. That the weeds are a plant that just, looks just like the wheat until harvest time. So this means that if you're a Christian and you're here tonight, um, you must never be naive about the seriousness of the brokenness in our world and our own hearts. We must never be overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. Uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's a physicist, wrote this. He says, the optimist thinks that this is the best of all possible worlds. The optimist thinks that this is the best of all possible worlds. And the pessimist fears that that's true. One of my professors in seminary, a man named Bill Edgar, said that this affects how we view and how we create art. I want to read this to you. He says, How does a Christian composer articulate a view of the world which has been profoundly polluted by sin, and yet that provides for genuine hope at the same time? This question provides us with a kind of test of authenticity. Artists often fall into one of two extremes, either optimism or pessimism. The optimist arrives at a happy ending, so to speak, without honestly passing through the valley of the shadow of death. And a good deal of music today is optimistic in that it tells of joy and peace without reckoning with evil. The pessimist is realistic about evil, but has little or no hope. The element of redemption is the missing dimension. In contrast, the biblical worldview is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Unlike optimism, the biblical worldview tells us to look evil in the eye. Say, it is real. But unlike pessimism, the Bible proclaims genuine hope because Christ has inaugurated a great reversal of the fall. Music that voices this philosophy will be both realistic about the darkness and unashamed of the light. And few people have as powerfully stood with integrity, neither yielding to optimism nor pessimism as African Americans. Forged in the clandestine church, 
hammered out on the anvil of oppression and immense suffering. Spirituals, gospel music, the blues, jazz, ragtime. These are so many related styles that express the central message of deep sorrow and deep joy. The theme of sorrow and joy in black music is a subject in itself. Being real in art is only possible when we can be real with God. I love that. So the kingdom is growing in the midst of real evil. We can live, or we do live, in this already and not yet of the kingdom. And we are called to engage both the real joy and the real sorrow. Which means that we need real wisdom to learn how to live in a world polluted by evil. So what does real wisdom look like? Um, I think real wisdom looks like being realistic in our expectations. Realistic in our expectations for work. As Christians, we're called to work for justice. Our work in the Lord is never in vain. But as this, as this parable teaches us to expect, all of the solutions that we come up with will be frustrated and will seem to cause other problems. The wheat and the weeds have grown up together and their roots are so intertwined that they are untangleable. So we have to be realistic in our expectations for work and also in our expectations in relationships. This parable means that even in the church, even in our Christian communities, life will be frustrating. This parable offers a helpful antidote for our unrealistic expectations of a utopian community, whether it be inside the church or outside the church. Um, Some of you will probably have a hard time finding a local church when you graduate because in your head it'll be like, well, it's not like RUF. Friends, there is no perfect church. The wheat and the weeds are even entangled in the church. So we have to be realistic in our expectations. But we also must live with hope. This parable teaches that God will judge one day and that Jesus is teaching us to long for and to pray for the day when he will make all things new. So finally, what is the answer that Christianity gives to the problem of evil? The Christian faith presents the problem of evil within a story. And it invites us to find ourselves in that same story. And the way that this story, the story that's found in the Christian scriptures, presents to us the the answer to the problem of evil is that it shows us Jesus Christ. Jesus, who in his incarnation was born into this world, who experienced the frustration of real evil and real chaos in the world he created. I mean, what was it like for him to walk this earth and to see the ruin that had come to his good creation? What was it like for him to see the brokenness that had come to the people whom he made in his image? And I hope you see this, that the Christian story is that God did not stand far off. He did not distance himself from the real evil and suffering of this world, but he entered into it. Jesus grieves more about the brokenness and evil of this world than you and I will ever do. And the solution he gives to the suffering of the world, the way that he overcomes evil, is by letting it overcome him. In his crucifixion, Jesus was counted amongst the evildoers. He was counted amongst the sinners. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father, like Jesus says in verse 43. These are the ones who God has rescued by sending his son to be their sin and to be thrown into the fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, the only one who is worthy to be called wheat, was cut up and burned like weeds. And in his resurrection, he had victory over the enemy and evil and death. 
Evil is not a problem that Jesus figured out. It's not a puzzle that he solved, but it is a grave from which he rose victorious. Death, the greatest evil, has no ultimate victory because Jesus rose from the dead. And finally, in Jesus' promised return, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised that he was coming back. And when he does, he tells us that he will set all things right. He will make all things new. Death itself will begin to work backwards. Friends, the, the, the hope of the Christian faith is not optimism. It's not that things are going to get better, that somehow your suffering will even out in the end, or that the horrors of this life will be matched by some commiserate joy in the next. The great hope of the Christian faith is that there is a man on the throne in heaven, and his name is Jesus, that he was victorious over death, that he bears the scars of his crucifixion, that he has made an unbreakable promise that he is going to come back, and when he does, he will raise us up. And with his hands... The same hands that gripped those wood and nails and joyfulness with his hands, he promises that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more mourning and no more crying and no more death and no more disease. There will be no more sorrow and no more pain. He tells us that those former things will have passed away. And he sits on the throne and he says, behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Father, we confess that even um, with your parables, even with the way that you speak clearly in your word, we are still confused about evil, um, especially when it visits us. Um, Lord, I pray for my friends and the real suffering that they experience in their lives and in their families. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you that you do not trot out answers for us. Um, You do not show us how to solve the problem of evil, but into the evil and suffering of this world, you have given yourself. Jesus, thank you that you give us yourself as your hope and promise that you will make all things new in yourself. And we thank you for this and pray in your name. Amen.